You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 125 for December 6th, 2017. I'm filling in for Chris Webster. I'm Stephen in Calgary. And on this show, we're going to talk about site forms and regional databases. So sit back, start to fill out some forms because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Bill in California. Good morning. In Utah, is that right? You're in Utah. Yes, I am right now. Hey, Kelsey Noack Myers in Florida, one of our guests. Yes, hi. And Jolene Smith in Virginia, another one. Hello. And uh, the reason I've called you all here is to talk about site forms and databases. Jolene, let's let's start with you. Uh, we had started to talk about last week on Twitter. You were commenting on how different uh, uh, the state databases are, and I was commenting on uh, completely opposite. I thought they were remarkably similar between uh, states. Um, so why don't we start out by, if you could, uh, describing, well, one, what, what you do, because I, I think that's a good lead-in, and then uh, we can run from there. Yeah, um, I'm Jolene Smith. I um, My general title, one of many, is I work for the Virginia Department of Historic Resources and I'm the Archaeology Data Manager right now is my core title. And so I essentially manage all of the information about archaeological sites. We have about 44,000 recorded archaeological sites in Virginia at this point. Um, and, and I've been in this position for coming up on 10 years in July um, over the transition between several databases and online systems. So I've been definitely Virginia-centric for my whole career, but I've also done a lot of collaboration with other groups like um, uh, the National Council of Historic Preservation Office's Technology and Survey Committee and working with some other sort of multi-state groups to think about how we organize our data. So I guess where does your comment come from on, on the... Uh you're mostly familiar with Virginia stuff. Um, you were thinking that uh, site databases were very different. Yeah, so that was really an interesting discussion that we were having because I do uh, the the data itself is different, but um, it, and the same. It's just sort of hard to articulate how you know it's sort of variable in that way because the, the, since all of the state historic preservation offices are sort of have very uh, diverse kind of makeups and organizational structures and the histories of organizing paper information and other kinds of information that's sort of translated into how databases are set up over the years. So to me, I see a lot of variability and difference. But when we were discussing it on Twitter, you were talking about how you saw a lot of standardization there, which was really fascinating. So we're all describing the same thing, but we do it in sort of varying different ways, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, and um, part of my comment was coming from, because I was just filling out site forms uh, here in Alberta, and and they are, I mean, cer certain types of types, like site types and stuff like that, they're, they're slightly defined different, or they're defined slightly differently. We have like artifact scatters, we have campsites, we have that, you know, the broad in the broad sense that the way that we're recording things is very similar to the site forms that I'm used to from back in Wisconsin. And, and, and you know, so I was just kind of musing, you know, on top of my head while I'm filling these things out. It's like, why is that? Where, where does this stuff come from? Um, but we should introduce Kelsey because uh, um, she uh, um, might have some good input on this. Uh, Kelsey, do you want to uh, talk about your background a little bit? Yeah. Um, unlike uh, Jolene, I've I've bounced around a lot in archaeology. Um, I started working in archaeology in 2004. Um, 
And a lot of my recent experience, uh, the context in which I met Jolene, uh, has been with the Digital Index of North American Archaeology. Um, and that was uh, sort of my side work when I went back to grad school for uh, my PhD. And so um, have now completed that degree and have gone from being a, a graduate researcher helping to compile the the ontology and sort of the, the workings of, of how we link data with uh, the digital index to being a, uh, I guess I'm sort of like a project affiliate. Um, and, and I've gone back to working in, in CRM. So I'm, I'm actually a PI and the lab director for a, a regional um, CRM. Well, it's an environmental compliance firm that has cultural uh, in-house and then um, I'm still I'm still dabbling in in Dina uh, pretty pretty often, but um, my experience working with uh, site forms has not just been from the end of of submitting data to states, but also then trying to pull um, multiple states databases together. And I actually spent um, a couple years uh, doing literature searches and form reviews and vocabulary reviews to look at how each state classifies its archaeology information, how they represent it, and how you can search through it, and then trying to figure out the disparities between how each state um, lists their information and, and provides it um, for searching uh, or for research or for use by, by archaeologists uh, and trying to put those together so you can look across state boundaries at, at information about people in the past. And so from, from that experience working with the digital index, um, I can say that there are definite similarities between the way that states collect and store and represent information. But uh, like Jolene said, a lot of it comes from... Um, sort of an inherited system of, of how to how to collect and represent that information based on the paper forms that were the original version uh, of, of the site files. And so each state has been sort of shaped by the people that have worked in archaeology in the past. Uh, and, and there's like a tradition of how you record the information at this point. Yeah, I was just going to add a little bit um, to the physical organization topic um, in Virginia, just through sort of collecting some institutional history. We found that even the physical layout of actual offices and uh, have dictated how databases are structured 40 years beforehand, um, depending on which room somebody was in and which physical slip of paper was closest to hand, dictated how uh, uh, sites and historic places were classified based on just, you know, how easy it was to reach for a form. So those types of things have maybe cascading implications toward data organization. It's really interesting. Yeah, that's something that's interesting to know. So I, in my experience, have only filled out the forms and then used the database that we have. So the SHPO database you ask for sites, then then you get whatever's in there. And I understand that you know the earlier collected information isn't always as complete or what we're you know really looking for as what we do now. So I know that what we record and what's going into the database has changed over time. But I always wondered why we had to look for certain things and, and why certain categories were actually on the form. And then uh, you, you know your explanation about how it sometimes it's just legacy. Um, ergonomics, I guess, of how someone's desk was closest to a certain piece of paper. And that's the reason why that one's on the, you know, at the top or whatever based or versus something that's much further down. So uh, I guess my question or comment is, um, is there any effort to try and standardize these forms? Because I've done them for several different states and the basic information about where the site is and what it is, that's always the same. But then some of the other things that go into it, the site numbering system and some of the other stuff, that's different. Uh, and then, you know, as I said before, you can get a wide range of different things recorded and how well the form is completed and, and how comprehensive it is. So is there any effort to maybe, I mean, it seems impossible, but work together with the 50 states and territories and all the hundreds of uh, tribal historic preservation offices to kind of make a standardized form? Uh, if, if I could jump back in. It's funny, you should ask, because um, the digital index um, has, has sought to do 
to do the work of, of linking the data and sort of standardizing a format uh, in which it can all be searched without each state having to change its site files or, um, or, its, or its forms. Um, because if you, if you look across from state to state, uh, it's actually in some cases beneficial to have different forms or different ways of collecting the information just because the archaeology is different in one area from another. And so to be able to have your state's forms maybe tailored to the tradition in which the work is done and also um, the types of sites that you have there, um, it, it's better to have a specialized form for that area, um, but then having something like the digital index that can then standardize it um, and do the work separately um, has been has been a nice tool, I think, for people to be able to use. Well, one, one thing, because I've looked at a lot of different, uh, you know, uh, not necessarily site forms per se, but like the requirements of what makes a site. And, and it, you know, there's like, like how many artifacts does it take to make a site? And, and, and it's widely variable um, from, you know, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And I, I kind of feel like that, Part of it is is the notion that these things aren't necessarily designed to find or to record all archaeological material. They are strictly site databases, and as part of um, you know, I don't want I don't know if uh, like resource management, but you know, definitely knowledge management of um, the the materials that are there. Uh, Jolene, yeah, I was just going to come back to that standardization question. Um, from a perspective on uh, the the national level committees, I've seen these ideas come up probably every five years or so. Um, and my perspective is is generally it's it's not going to happen to get all of archaeologists in each each of the fifty states and the various other territories to comply with that just because it's. Um, you know, there's so much inertia in the way that people are already working and already organizing their information on a very regional level um, that the, that complete standardization is sort of too much to ask. But what is happening, and Dina is helping this along a lot, um, as well as the, the National Park Service has been working for a long time on sort of minimum standards. And that kind of approach to me seems far more effective to, is to uh, create some minimum geospatial standards or even sort of data literacy to help people understand what they're making and to, to set them up to be able to connect to each other versus to uh, sort of dictate a standardized way of recording everything. Can you give us some examples of uh, what kind of, what, 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 are, what are these standards like? Well, it would be, you know, do we record polygons or points is which one of those are acceptable? Um, how do we describe the level of confidence in the geospatial data? Um, the, the, those minimum standards that I'm talking about right now are purely related to geospatial information. But that also sort of connects back to everything else because some states store their entire site files inventory in a geodatabase and others don't. So it's really variable as far as how what's like the primary core of the archaeological site information is defined differently from place to place. Um, I could I could add that the um, accessibility too of that data is um, different from state to state. Like working working for a regional firm um, now, I've got to remember how each state does things um, at any given time. I could be working on projects in you know two or three different states, and uh, even if it's a federal project, it could be. Um, a project in Georgia and it's on, um, you know, it's within the purview of Army Corps and they recommend that we follow Georgia SHPO standards. Um, or I could be working in Florida and, you know, we've got to remember how Florida does things. If it's in North Carolina, um, they only do uh, the paper site files. You can't actually search the records online. Um, you have to physically go there uh, to, to obtain information. So, I mean, it's, it's, you know, again, like each, each state, I don't think 
um, like, like Jolene said, I don't know that it's, that it's possible and, and really even preferable to have a standardized form that applies to the entire, the entire United States. Hi everyone. Uh, a quick question. What sort of variable, um, collection do you guys find across the different States? And I'm thinking more in terms of like metadata. Um, so do pretty much every States that you guys have looked at, do they all sort of require things like, you know, who was the principal investigator who recorded the site date it was recorded and stuff like that? Or is there a lot of variability just from those different sort of records across states? I would say, this is Jolene, I would say that um, there are likely some bits of information that are going to be fairly consistent, but never completely universal. Like date recorded is one of those things. But sometimes, especially with legacy records, you what you might be seeing in that date box is the date somebody wrote it down, not necessarily the date they were in the field making the observation. So even bits of information that appear to be pretty consistent may have its own internal inconsistencies. Kelsey may be able to speak a little bit more to that too, since she's been working to sort of wrangle the connections between those kinds of data. Um, yeah, I mean, I think completeness definitely when you're looking at legacy collections is one of the main issues um, and sort of brings down that, that uh, common denominator, if you will, with, with the metadata um, in that uh, if you, if it's missing for a majority of the sites that you have recorded because it just wasn't written down in the past, um, you know, then that your, your, your data set's going to be uh, much more sparse. Um, so I think, I think now, um, you know, it's tending, tending to be that those things are requested, but in the past, that's definitely a problem. And, you know, we can't go back necessarily and enter that information. I mean, I know <laughs> Jolene, you don't have time to go <laughs> look at legacy sites and, uh, try and track down information to, to enter those, nor would that be part of your, um, you know, your daily responsibilities. Absolutely. Okay, let's take our first break right here. For those of you listening, uh, please remember that you can become a member. Uh, we have a member site at the www.arcpodnet.com slash members. Check that out. Become a member. Um, help support uh, our fine uh, podcasting network. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Welcome back. Um, we are talking about site forms and regional databases with uh, Jolene Smith and Kelsey Noack Myers. Jolene, you were uh, about to add something? Yeah, I was just going to talk about uh, the variability within an individual state in terms of site records based on why sites were recorded. So in Virginia, we have records probably dating back to, uh, well, the SHPO was established in 1966, but we have earlier records from avocational archaeologists, and we did have a, a state archaeologist in Virginia before the SHPO even existed. Um, so we have sort of subsets of data that are sites that are recorded but through avocational archaeologists, site, sites that were recorded by agency archaeologists. There was a time when we had a whole bunch of field archaeologists running out through the agency doing survey. Um, we have academic archaeology represented in our data, and we have CRM. And depending on the reason for investigation of those sites, the records look really, really different. Um, and especially in terms of CRM, where the, the core document that describes the site is actually going to be the report, right? So all of the uh, backup information and the um, raw data and images and things like that are associated with the CRM report. All that, the, the site forms may be less 
fleshed out because there's that report to look toward. Whereas an avocational record might be pretty rich because there's no report that goes along with it. So there's a big variability there in the reason why sites were investigated. Sure. And um, depending on uh, the site forms that I've worked with, uh, sometimes the guidance like this isn't a site site report. Don't make it, you know, it's, it's not a complete report. It is just a site form. Don't make it a report. And then other places are more like, you know, we want it to be kind of a standalone document. You know, people shouldn't have to go reread your entire report just to find out about like an individual site. Um, but it, um, going back to uh, what you were talk, talking about earlier, I, I feel like um, a lot of times the way that our databases are structured are, is, is partly because of, like you were saying, it kind of depends on why you're recording it. So the research questions um, involved, like, and, and even, you know, we, we've discussed this in the past, but uh, going back to, um, like, what, what are the theoretical questions or, you know, what are the research, underlying research questions uh, from a theoretical approach? Are we interested in cultural history? Are we interested in, you know, I, I, I imagine that these affect both you know, the structures of um, site forms and databases, but also, you know, like how, the types of data that we're, that we kind of like squeeze in there. In, in Virginia over the years, um, and this sort of, if I find all this stuff, you know, on one hand really boring and on another hand really fascinating because it's all connected to political will and the economy as well, because there's, historically been a tension in our own Shippo database as what well, you know as to what it's for. Is it for facilitating compliance with section 106? Or is it for having a comprehensive research window into all of Virginia archaeology? So those are two really different questions. And um, we've sort of vacillated back and forth depending on the political climate and budgets and, you know, who's in leadership and things like that. And I know that's pretty much very similar from state to state. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, because with with the, the SHPO data in, in any state, it's um, hugely affected by uh, the funding that's available to pay for people to do the work, right? And a lot of this um, ends up being um, federally or state mandated work that is also not funded. And so sometimes um, the amount of financial support um, behind a project can affect the level of data recorded. So uh, like Jolene said, you know, an avocational uh, archaeologist who's, you know, somebody that on the weekends, um, you know, is out uh, researching historical information and, and maybe stumbles upon a site and then wants to present that to the state, you know, they're going to be um, donating their own time to contributing to the archaeological record, whereas somebody who's uh, potentially working in CRM, you know, they've got dozens of sites that they're currently trying to document for clients and they've got so much money um, in the budget for the reporting portion of the project and they got to get that out the door and get it to the state with as little, um, you know, as little uh, messing around with adjustments to the data uh, as possible. Um, and so, I mean, on, on the SHPO end, they're, they're largely uh, underfunded and, and overtaxed on their time and asked to do a lot of a lot of things that they don't necessarily have the support to do. Sure. Um, do, do you, um, I guess this might be um, better for Jolene, uh, but for either of you, uh, do you find that um, as we're moving into uh, more of the information age and, and, and now like I can submit stuff in, uh, if not database form uh, format, then like a XML format where uh, theoretically you can automatically pipe that in. I mean, I'm sure there's a little bit of massaging that has to go for errors and whatnot, but um, is it less labor intensive now to coordinate it all? Um, well, so I'll give a little, a little bit of more background. When I started it in this position in 2008, uh, we were using uh, our Virginia system was called DSS data sharing system. And back in uh, 1997, when it was uh, released, 
it was state of the art, <laughs> but it wasn't state of the art by 2008. It was one of the original sort of integrated web mapper state site files databases, um, but it was nearing the end of its life in that 2008 period. And at that point, my, my job then um, was everything, the data, site data was entered online and I reviewed, but I was digitizing all of the shapes that people had, uh, would submit for sites straight into GIS, either from, uh, physically mailed in graphics. Um, we moved to emailed PDFs of the shapes and then, uh, I was still getting faxed graphics <laughs> from time to time. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, <laughs> In in 2013, we released our most recent application, which was a totally custom system uh, where people digitize their own boundaries straight into the system, and it's live, and it's wonderful, and I no longer have to do that work ever again, and it's great to not have to heads-up digitize all day long. Um, so yeah, it's a lot different and a lot easier, and we worked out that sort of quality control process, so it's much faster now than it was, you know, nine years ago, um, which is great because now I can use my time to do lots of different things. So when, when somebody submits something, is, does it go to like a repository, to, like, like kind of like a, an intermediate stage to review it? Yeah. Or, you know, where everything's okay before it gets you know, put into the, the final stew. Mm -hmm. So right now it's a two-step uh, quality control process. Um, everything is sort of organized within a project, and that project can be the actual CRM project where you might, you know, identify 30 different archaeological sites during a phase one survey, or it can be some arbitrary break up of how your stuff. So you, you batch multiple sites in a project. And that's cool too, because that uh, eliminates duplicate data entry. So you don't have to enter the same project level information on all 30 of those sites. It's just zipped right up in there and everything gets those details uh, included. So the first level of data entry is sort of map location information. And so I get those requests and I just essentially check to make sure that what somebody is sending in is actually an archaeological site and there's not already something mapped there. And then I send it back for more data entry and they complete the rest of the uh, information to come back for a second time. And after that's approved, then, then they get their final trinomial assigned. Okay. Um, how, this is kind of a step away, but how, how do you find that like the newer data that's coming in com compares to the older stuff? You know, because I mean, back back in the day, you know, you have your quad map and, and you draw a little square on your quad map or like a dot, and you know, you'd send that in, and, and you know, it's in some cases it was best guesses for location or what whatnot. And now it's like, you know, even with like a you know navigation grade GPS, I can come up with at least within a five meter area of what I'm looking at. Um, and, and do you find that? trying to reconcile those two things is kind yeah, of wonky or that's always, that's been a challenge and there's still an incredible amount of variability even with the stuff that's coming in right now not every crm firm is using the same level of equipment and we're currently not capturing from the crm firms or non-crm archaeologists um, the methodology that they're using to, to collect their boundaries. We don't really necessarily know from the site form whether they're using a GPS unit or whether they're still coming home and drawing it on a topo, which is also happening. Um, so there's still a lot of variability in there. And that's one of the critical pieces that we have to express back out to people that, who are using our data, data um, is how to interpret it. So if, say, a planter, a planner from a local government is looking at archaeological sites and they say that, hey, look, there's clearly nothing 50 feet over from this cemetery, <laughs> that that's not necessarily a sound planning level shape. Um, so under like communicating what the data mean is challenging in that way, especially to people who aren't on the inside. Sure. Well, and one thing I've wondered about is um, a lot of times there's like the checkbox for, um, you know, did you use a GPS? And it's like, yes. But, you know, G GPSs are highly variable. Like, you know, if I took a GPS point back in 1997, 
when you know selective variability was on or whatever that was called um you know you're, you're looking at 15 meters off versus um you know like uh you know like a, a differential gps um you know sub meter or or you know survey grade uh data you know and, and then some people are still out there you know running around with garments and some people are using trimbles and you know these aren't necessarily the same thing um you know for, for something as general as like a point saying there's a site here that you know like pretty much anything right now is good enough but you know you're still talking at different levels of um data uh you'd mentioned that you check the records to see that nothing's already there so is that does that mean that you're checking to make sure that they're not re-recording the same site or if they are that they then add the record to that site's um, information. Uh, do you, does that happen a lot where you actually get people recording the same same location multiple times? Yeah, we actually do get a lot of resurvey. Um, and that's, that's exactly how it works is that if somebody is adding information to a site that may have been recorded in, you know, 1980, they can just go in and, and add that old record to their project and it will append all of their new survey information on there. So that's, that works really nicely to see sort of the, uh, the life cycle of a site is all recorded in there in what we call CRM events. Yeah, and working in CRM, it's it's interesting because our current research is um, limited by what was done in the past. So we're trying to stack um, our geospatial on top of a computerized sketch map, on top of a hand-drawn sketch map, on top of historical plat maps. You know, so it's it's um, it's again like you're you're re-recording, but you're hopefully adding more specific updated information. And also it's, it's a way to, you know, keep an eye on sites over time. You know, if something hasn't been visited in a while, um, it may be really different, but you may also have, uh, much, much more, um, fine grained data available, uh, from a modern recording than say something that was like earlier in the, in the 20th century. And are you guys just mainly checking for geographic sort of, um, I guess, similarity, or do you check all the surrounding sites with the idea that some of them may not be in the correct location? So uh, a while back when I did a survey, we they misrecorded the site on the wrong ridge. Um, and eventually we got back to the records and managed to say, oh, we had just recorded the same site. Um, they just put it in the wrong location. Um, and so it was all one record and we kept it as that. But if we'd gone just off of, you know, coordinates, we would have thought there were two different sites. Do you have a, some sort of way of checking to see that or you just sort of hope that they're in the right location? Um, usually I it's sort of a balanced approach there. Um, I if there's a site near enough in proximity, I will double check to make to check on its sort of temporal context and interpretive context to see if it may be the same thing. Um, but one thing that could really improve that kind of data check is just visual on my end, being able to visualize the data in a different way, because right now I can see the other boundaries of the sites surrounding the one that I'm quality controlling, but I'm not, it takes a little bit more effort to sort of research what they are. So even just for my own purposes, presenting our site file data in a different way that would sort of expedite and improve my ability to figure out what's what could, you know, dramatically improve the quality of the new data that's coming into. I would think that, you know, at least, you know, within, you know, the industry CRM, that a lot of that would, you know, shouldn't that fall on the recorder? I mean, theoretically is, is you know, we're doing a uh, related cultural overview in, in our report talking about nearby sites and stuff like that. Wouldn't you, uh, I mean, you know, not, not to dump it all on the database people at, you know, in the state capital, but, you know, sh shouldn't uh, CRM archaeologists, isn't that our responsibility to, uh, to, you know, determine that sort of thing? I, I think it is uh, somebody who's working in CRM right now. Um, I mean, we, we do, like you said, you do the, you do the background research, you present sort of the general history of the area. 
Um, but I know too from from reviewing uh, when I used to work for a tribal historic preservation office, uh, reviewing these reports, a lot of times, you know, they say, well, I was hired to, to look at this site. I wasn't hired to do a survey of the larger area. And so I only, I only searched for this immediate area where the project is that I was paid to work on. When I handle that, I sort of try to strike a balance. Um, so sometimes I'll, I'll notice that there are some sites very nearby that, could be either related and even if they're just contextually related they may be different sites i still want the site record to show that um so normally i'll just send it back to the person entering the data and ask them say hey i saw these sites here um it looks like they could be the same or they could be related could you tell me just tell us what you think about that in the record so i'm not the one necessarily doing all of the work but i'm not also not making it a, a mandate for anybody else to, you know, rejecting their work. So what happens when you do that? Do they, do they help you out or is there pushback? Oh yeah, that's usually fine. I mean, it's, it's never, it's, it's not, I'm, I do my best to never waste anybody's time. I know that um, in the private sector, everything that's not billable is really tough to <laughs> squeeze in. <laughs> and I have a lot of respect for that. So I'm, I'm usually always very conscious of other people's, time and effort. So um, along those lines, uh, do the databases that you work with, uh, are there ways of communicating that um, this site might be related to um, this other site or they might be the same site or um, if, if you have to merge or fork sites, um, you know, is there a good way of showing that, demonstrating that? Um, yeah, we have database fields that do that. Right now, um, it's a little bit limited. We have one field that's called other DHR ID, which uh, makes my uh, database administrator soul weep a little bit because it's one of those fields that has been around forever that is used to store several different kinds of data. So we can cross-reference records with that field but we can't establish hierarchical relationships. And what we really need is sort of parent and child level hierarchical relationships. But that's another database story. <laughs> well, and, and maybe we'll have time for that. Uh, we are now ending the second segment before we go to the break. Now is a good time to visit the Archaeology Podcast Network uh, shop at www.archpodnet.com slash shop. Right now, you can get a 15% discount off the APN store, not including t-shirts. Uh, this discount will go until uh, the 31st of December. And, you know, 15% off sounds like a pretty good deal. I don't, I don't know if any of uh, you guys have uh, gotten anything on that, but uh, that coffee mug looks pretty good. Just what you need for uh, filling out those site forms. So let's uh, go to the break. Interested in archaeology? Want to hear from experts in the field about the latest discoveries and interpretations? Check out the Archaeology Show every other Saturday and let hosts Chris Webster and April Camp Whitaker take you deeper into the story. Check out the Archaeology Show at www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology and subscribe, rate, and comment on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and the Google Music Store. That's www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology. Now back to the show. Welcome back. Bill, did you want to talk about that? Yeah, I've definitely got something to say about um, the way that going paperless could actually help the shippo. And I never actually thought about this until we had this podcast, but it's no secret that Chris Webster and several other individuals have been working on systems to record uh, all the archaeological information through uh, tablets. And right now I saw a presentation, I think two weeks ago by Michael Ashley from Codify, and it seemed like they had an excellent system that was very similar to the system I used to use in Arizona, which I've adapted that since leaving Arizona to just do archaeology, just general archaeology. But it's always still tied to paper systems. So uh, I think I've mentioned it before, but I never actually went into depth of talking about the provenience designation system that, that's used throughout Tucson. I, I think it's used in Phoenix, too. But uh, basically, you have a system where you use just numbers to uh, 
to name three-dimensional objects. So excavation units, the site boundary, buildings that are within that, roads that pass through there, all there, anything that you'd want to record, uh, you use the, um, uh, give it a provenience designation, which is just a numeral. The biggest problem is after you finish doing that, you record all that in a series of notebooks and on paper forms, but then you've got to come back to the office and type all that information down into you know, an Excel database for the numerical data. Uh, and then uh, Microsoft Word is what you use to create uh, a site form or, or the unit summary or something like that. And then you put together those unit summaries or those field descriptions into the site form that's for the state that you're working in. So in my experience, it was either uh, Washington, California, Nevada, or Arizona. Each of those states had different forms, but the information that we were collecting was more than sufficient to uh, actually fulfill those needs. So what I realized is that with this new paperless system, not only do you get rid of that whole having to retranslate things into Microsoft Word and Excel, the, the database just creates the Excel files for you. But the other thing about having the database is you have, you can uh, build relational databases. So you can um, connect uh, bags of artifacts to excavation levels, or you can con connect site numbers to different places within the project area and different things like that. And what I realized is that might actually be helpful for cataloging sites because you would have the person who collected it the site information, and then if they wanted to go deeper, you would even have the relationship between excavation units, transects, different things in there. And so I guess my question is, is that the kind of stuff that would be useful for a state historic preservation office or the folks who are managing these state um, databases? Um, so I will be a little bit of a contrarian here. Um, so just to, in the way that, not that I don't absolutely love these paperless recording systems, they're fantastic, but um, just to, to let the outside world who's not state government understand that we are often operating within very, very constrained information technology environments. So um, even as though our, our system that we've developed is, is recently new, uh, we've had a lot of requests to figure out ways to automate sort of batch upload of records, uh, especially for the architecture side of our database, since there's a lot of higher sort of volume of numbers of resources recorded. But it's been really, really tricky to figure out how to pull that off, not necessarily from a technical perspective, although that's there, Um but from uh, just get like physically, like actually getting the application um, modified in a way that will accept this data is nothing to sneeze at when you're talking about um, state information technology procurement and all of this business. Um, so there's a lot of possibility there, but it's really hard to get that stuff to happen overnight. It's definitely one of my main agendas, but it it's it's we can we change a little bit slowly. But presumably, like the output could be something where it um, is in the format that you can use, and and however you know the the entry is the you know easiest, right? Like oh, absolutely. If, if you have, if you have yeah. certain data type requirements, then you know I can provide you that data in, in those you know types. For sure. I mean, there are so many ways to make it faster and easier on the the data collection end. Um, but for the time being, in Virginia at least, we're going to be constrained to to actually entering those sites into the system one by one. Even if you already have it in your own wonderful, beautiful, perfectly clean database, it's just really hard for us to get it back into ours at the moment. So that's an unfortunate downside yeah. of um, maybe a less than agile government information technology systems. Well, the the goal ultimately is for the um, for the database to basically produce the site form at the click of a button. You know, you know which state you're working in, and then you push whatever you know, California or Arizona, and it'll just create it, and it'll look exactly like the site form. And I understand that you guys will have to insert the information. But this could be the starting point where, you know, I don't know, I guess other researchers who are, the idea would be that 
it would save money and that many different companies would choose similar or the same system so that we can actually have between regional comparisons and actually instead of writing these statewide archaeology histories or regional histories that are just from the report, we'd have the original data to maybe crunch together and look at. So that's from the CRM end. The idea is that it will save us money, but also generate exactly what you wanted. So kind of now is the time to tell us if you if you knew which direction you were going before everybody starts adopting these tablet systems, now's the time to tell us how can we help you? What are the things that you would need in order to either push for you guys to get a new system or for us to record the kind of things that really help you speed up your process? So is there anything that we can do? Oh, absolutely. And I've I've been sort of waiting to hear from Virginia CRM farms that are looking at uh, mobile recording systems myself. And I've spoken to a couple who've been dabbling um, and actually tried to help them along the way with sort of setting up structures or, I mean, I, I look, I will hack my own system to death all day long to automate my own workflows and I'll help you do the same to get your data into my system. Um, but if something like before I would advise a, a CRM firm before they even start with, um, you know, really getting in the, into the weeds of requirements for their own paperless system to talk to the shippos that they're working with and get a real sort of database entity relationship diagram in hand and things like that. So they know they can set their information up um, and understand a lot of like a lot of these database relationships, which when you look at a site form in Virginia, you might not see all of those relationships that are in the back end database, but they are there and they are really complicated. And it's not just a matter of you know, mapping one field to another and just ingesting an XML database into another. So there's a lot more sort of to it and having conversations with the technical folks from both ends to make things compatible at the very beginning would be a fantastic idea. Speaking of compatibility, um, tossing this at Bill and describing the system that knocks it out, how do you deal with the fact that like um, these really aren't databases, but are knowledge bases, right? So, like, um, yeah. you're already interpreting the, the hard, a lot of the hard data into certain types of classes and types and, and categories um, that aren't necessarily the same between uh, jurisdictions. Um, yeah, exactly. No, I mean. Um... Like I said before, when we used them at the companies in Arizona, it was just a way to to collect our own information. And uh, it was just a system that we had used many different times because the idea is that you just, rather than having these um, uh, level one of unit one in phase one of project X, right? So you have multiple different one values going in there. So when you try to sort for it, You've got to try to find unit one versus this one or look for all the units and stuff. You know, uh, when you finish a, a form in the provenience designation system, or if you have the provenience log and you don't even actually fill out the actual form, you have a database that is standardized, just like you're saying. Um, so some things like site location, uh, structure, uh road or things that we commonly encounter in the in the United States all the time those things are it's pretty obvious that you know that thing is going to be a site boundary we've created it we needed it there's a project area that we have those things are generic um, units that uh, go across boundaries but you're exactly right there's a big uh, discrepancy between you know excavation unit test pit locus um, area. Uh, there's a discrepancy between the way that people call levels or strata, whether you, where you dig it, how you dig it and stuff. So those things, it's difficult to standardize. But going back to the site forms, uh, in my experience of filling out the site forms, that front end part of who you are, uh, what date it is, what the site number is that's been given from SHPO, um, what kind of site it is, historical, prehistoric, and we can even argue about that. Some places even have, you know, proto-historic or um, historical Native American versus historical Asian or something like that. They'll have all those different options that you can choose. But, you know, really the provenience designation system makes it 
quicker for us to write the site form because we already have all that basic data. We can create those tables of how many artifacts were within this area, this site, or how many features did we see, and how many of those are lithic versus uh, prehistoric ceramic versus historical. So all those things made it easier to do the analysis. But you're right; I'm not sure how uh, how this would work out on a much larger system. Basically, right now we're using the the PD system to write site forms and stuff for the states in which we work, which it still requires translation, right? You still have to take the generic data you've recorded and then enter it into the proper form properly as the way mandated by that state. So the idea would be that you would collect, you would have to code or standardize your stuff in the collection system and then choose, you know, Arizona or whatnot, and it would select all those items of data that you've recorded that matter for the state of Arizona that would help you fill out that site form. And then you would have to fill in the gaps with all the idiosyncrasies. So I don't know if it would really go over exactly, which is why I asked about if there was a standardized, an effort to standardize what we're recording, because this system would make it lightning quick. And I can see how as this grows in the future, which it's obviously going to grow, companies are going to start pushing for more and more standardized uh, recordation. That's not necessarily going to be a good thing, but it's going to be a thing that I can see there being a real push in the future. Yeah. I mean, as you, as you centralize, I guess the data uh, increasingly, um, you know, you, you have to, you have to overcome all of the inherent assumptions uh, in the data collection and representation, which is part of why, uh, you know, it's probably better to have individualized forms uh, and data ontologies for each state than to try and come up with a national system. Um, and again, DINA being a good way to to uh, look at that that information across states because it can it can link those terms for you. Um, and as as part of my work. Um, with Dina, when I was helping to assemble uh, terms and ontology, um, but then also overlapping with my own research for uh, my dissertation, I was I was looking at a, a site that had a long history of occupation and then um, was normally referred to as a historic site because, yes, during the historic period, there was uh, active use and um, a, a lot of activity that left an archaeological signature. Uh, and and when I was working in Dina on uh, the Virginia information, I was looking at a sort of a, a string of states through my area of, of interest and looking at this term proto-historic, which you had just mentioned as an example. Uh, and, and Jolene uh, has an interesting situation with the term proto-historic uh, in Virginia when I asked, uh, what what do you mean when you say proto-historic? Um, Jolene? Yeah, th- this all comes back to an earlier question about whether we have a thesaurus of terms. And the answer is, in Virginia, we do absolutely do not. And so our... Uh, our vocabularies about how we have described sites have just been completely organically evolving over the years, which is great in some respects and also really, really tricky in others. And uh, I have a great respect for the Dina folks who have spent lots and lots of time uh, linking our wacky time period designations and uh, site categories and things like that. So for instance, the term proto-historic um, was so I can look in the data to see when it was sort of introduced, but I can't tell you what the definition necessarily is. I can't give you years to describe what time period that really means. Um, and part of our transition to Vicris, and this was a, a really arduous process, was taking every single list of terms that we ever had in our site records and deciding sort of what we should retire, what we should uh, migrate to a new term, and things like that. And even those decisions were 
pretty much organic and not based in any kind of controlled vocabulary. And so we, we uh, sort of retired the term proto-historic for now. It's visible in the data, but it's not something we'll, we currently use moving forward because it's challenging to put a number, begin year and end year on that. So it's really sort of a fascinating window into how we even organize time from in our Western framework and how those kinds of things cascade down into the data. And in when you, when you, the more constrained pick lists in my experience in the Virginia data that we assign, it's great because we now have standardization, but sometimes we also lose some, some granular qualitative understanding of what the sites are because we've we've maybe pushed somebody into a descriptor that's one of the choices in the pick list. So it's really interesting to see how um, the, the trade-offs between standardization and sort of allowing for a lot more marginalia and uh, qualitative description. Right, because we, I mean, we have to do this to talk about the past, to talk about, you know, multiple sites or, or regional study. We have to classify and categorize people in the past, but then we're also imposing limitations in, in the vocabulary and the, the ontology of, of how we describe these things, uh, which is largely what, what Dina has been, has been working with over the last five years, um, is trying to figure out um, you know, what are you actually talking about when you're trying to describe a site? And then um, what what academic tradition or practical tradition are you working from that you're choosing to describe things the way you are? So um, I've done a lot of sort of anthropological study of archaeology over the last five years. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think there's a much larger impact um, on the historical record, on the archaeological record, um, by the people who are doing the work than we than we usually acknowledge. Is it, is it better, or is, is it will it become technologically feasible? I guess to become more of a database and less of like these knowledge bases where you know we are dealing with all these really you know um, kind of smoothed out data without the, the granularity. You know, are, are we going to get to the point where we can somehow include like very uh, granular stuff? Um, I, I, I would say yes, um, absolutely. But it's all in my uh, experience herding these cats. You have to allow for all of the myriad ways in which people are like, what what granular stuff are we actually talking about? So it's all going to sort of interact differently. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I feel like data literacy uh, is such a huge part of what we need to be doing moving forward. Um, and even as for CRM archaeologists who might not be working with the backend data uh, knowing what they're creating and how to create a, a robust digital data set and how to describe something in a way that's going to persist going forward and formats and standardization and all of those kinds of things are that's that's an education that a lot of people don't necessarily get um, in archaeological programs for sure that I think we're, we're all really going to need moving forward. This is Chris Webster jumping in here as I'm doing the editing. So they thought they'd lost the last segment and recorded another, but with different and new material continuing the last discussion. In that additional segment, they talked about architecture as it's represented in the site files, the Digital Index of North American Archaeology, otherwise known as DINA, and their November 2017 publication in PLOS One, climate change, and a number of other topics. To hear all of that, that final last segment, which is a solid 20 minutes, um, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to sign into your account or become a member today. Select bonus content from the menu and you'll have it. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Thank you very much to Jolene and Kelsey for their expert opinions on site files and databases. You can reach Jolene on Twitter at A-E-J-O-L-E-N-E. -E -E, that's A-E-Jolene. And you can reach Kelsey at K-J-N Myers. That's K-J-N-M-Y-E-R-S. And a special thanks to Stephen Wagner for hosting the show and doing all the legwork this time. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.arcpodnet.com slash podcast. 
Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks, everyone, for joining me this week. Thanks also to listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Bye. Adios. Bye. See ya. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Every time, man. 125 times. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.